Hey, I'm your host, Sarah Sennett. I'm a master's qualified digital marketer. Together, we're going to up-level your marketing game. My aim for the Marketing Mindset Club is to give you clarity on how to create and communicate value. Learn the latest marketing techniques, build your skill set, and develop the confidence you need to get the results you want. Hello, folks. Welcome back to the Marketing Mindset Club. Today, we have a very special guest. We are talking to Dan Bassett. Dan is head of marketing at IMP Software, which is a financial solutions provider in the multi-academy trust space in education. So our topic today is around brand-led demand generation. And one definition of, of demand gen is getting people interested in what you have to sell, which when you contrast it with lead gen, is which is about turning that interest into leads you've got two sides of what could be considered a similar coin but they are very different so demand generation is probably something you'll need to consider if you are launching a new product into the marketplace or if you're taking an existing product into a new market and it can be thought of in a b2b or b2c context so we've got loads to chat about today welcome to the show Dan. thanks for having me Awesome. I'm so glad we could finally connect and, and have this conversation. So um, so tell me a bit about your background as a marketer and, and where you how you got to where you are today. Sure. So um, I suppose I, I my kind of professional career started um, a bit earlier than probably a lot of your listeners did. I started kind of at 16, 17. I decided that, you know, university wasn't for me. But actually, in, in hindsight, um, kind of going down the you know, getting my kind of education from from the working world has actually served me really well, um, which is which is interesting. So I joined um, a company, uh, I joined EDF Energy, who was the kind of largest local employer at the time. Um, I was quite fortunate to get a position placed in their B two B team. So started looking after some of like their major customer accounts from a customer service perspective. Did that for um, five years then moved into a kind of sales analyst type role um, and then did some various different kind of project roles supporting the kind of the kind of connection between service and sales. Um, so I had a kind of really rounded experience and, and my kind of first eight years of my career was all about kind of learning business really. And it was a kind of really long MBA, I suppose, in a way. Um, so, so I did that for eight years and then um, decided that I wanted to go and do more kind of frontline sales, I suppose. So I worked for a a uh, kind of small family business called the Purple Company, which does branded uniform and promotional products and bits and pieces about two years. Um, and that was really my kind of first hybrid marketing and sales role. They they have a real kind of like self-startup type environment where they, they give you the product knowledge and everything else, but they kind of expect you to run your own campaigns with the sectors that they give you and run the sales process as well. So I, I think I looked after sports and charities for them for a couple of years um, and my first project, they gave me a thousand pound marketing budget and told me to, you know, go and make more money than that, basically. Um, and in two months time, came back to them with 60,000 pounds and they were really ecstatic with me. So gave That's me a pretty awesome result right there. <laughs> yeah, and it was it was really kind of my first understanding of this is how marketing works and how business works properly, you know, on the ground doing it yourself, which was which is great. Um, so I got a kind of promotion out of that, which was um, which was fantastic. And then, you know, you know, did more and more and took on more responsibility. And then that was kind of the pattern of my career for a while, really joining companies and then doing hybrid roles and not really realizing that's what I was doing. But um, 
but I suppose I was um, and then made redundant um, the back end of the sorry beginning part of last year. I was made redundant. Um, I was a, I was working at that time for a company called the Equinity Group, which is a FTSE listed um, public services company. Um, was made redundant from there, and then really decided, you know, what is it that I want to do? What do I kind of enjoy doing? Out of you know the stuff that I've done for the last you know ten or fifteen years, and landed on marketing, and uh, you know happened to meet a fantastic entrepreneur at the time who was a year into a business had established product market fit and was looking for somebody to help them kind of grow that and you know take it to the next level for them um i've been there for yeah just just over a year now uh, um i'm as you say as um as the head of marketing and I'm, and I'm loving it that's incredible so i think you speak for a lot of marketers out there who haven't necessarily studied the discipline and done a you know started out their whole career and grown in the area but actually the experience that you do have makes you so aware of how businesses work do you do you think that background gave you the commercial awareness that helps you be successful in marketing yeah I think so I think you know jumping into a you know my my first proper marketing role you know 10 or 15 years into a into a career gives you a lot to kind of look back on because you can you can empathize from a customer perspective having that kind of customer service experience understand what might go wrong or what customers are looking for and how that process needs to work really well to provide them with what they need and you can also empathize from a sales perspective because you have to understand you know the pressure that put that get puts on salespeople and what they need to be able to do their job really really well so i can if i can alleviate some of those pain points as a marketer by doing good demand gen work and, and building good good brands and you know establishing a, you know a, a good community from a customer perspective then I help everybody out and and business wins then it's you know win-win all round. I think that's really awesome and that's quite an important point you make there because I would imagine there are some marketers out there who maybe haven't experienced the the sales driven environment and being on the other side of the desk where your responsibility is to generate the sales and meet the targets and and be that financial brain as mm. a marketer if you've not experienced that it, there is a tendency to be a bit detached from that I think so yes. you're in an ideal situation where you've been on both sides of the the fence as it were um so I've also known salespeople who don't know how to communicate with marketers and marketers who don't know how to communicate with salespeople so you know that's another interesting dynamic that uh, that I think you probably can navigate superbly having been on both sides of, of that. It's been extremely useful, um, I think. And I think actually one of the big problems in, in a lot of businesses that I've seen is that, like you say, that kind of mismatch sales and marketing alignment piece is, is often not done very well. Um, and I think that's an area that, you know, I think hopefully I can I can do it maybe better than some, but that's an area that I try to focus on is just making sure that you know the business is properly aligned to what it's trying to achieve which is you know what we're kind of largely talking about today is about kind of good brand work and and your brand should be a representation of your business values not just what you think looks pretty yeah absolutely so let's get into it then so we are talking about demand led brand led demand generation today so tell me and tell our listeners a little bit about what that means to you and whether the definitions I gave up front were about right or or not so much. Tell us your interpretation. Yeah, I, I mean, yeah, you, you were spot on. Lead generation is about driving qualified opportunities into a sales pipeline. So it's about, you know, understanding who your market is, 
talking to that market and qualifying what their requirements are. And generally speaking, a, um, a lead generation process will go through a, a framework that's called BANTS, which stands for Budget, Authority, Need and Timescale. And in that process, essentially what you're looking for is to understand what are my potential customers' priorities? What are my priorities as a business and how do I align those to make sure that we're you know, set up to win, basically, and that I can qualify into the sales pipeline and do the job that um, uh, of making sure that this opportunity is more likely to close into, into revenue. Uh, and demand generation is the bit that goes before that, where it's about creating engagement in your in what you do um, and alignment with with your market and then understanding that engagement um, you know scoring it understanding what what customers are saying to you about saying anything and then nurturing that engagement to such a point where you know that they are you know they're engaged in what you're doing and they're such they're so engaged they're likely to become become a customer at some point we just have to you know keep nudging them or keep nurturing them so I guess if you were thinking about it in a, a very traditional funnel sense we're talking about very top of funnel activities here we're talking about generating awareness and starting to get that engagement before you know who the contact is and before you know who the customer is yeah potentially i mean you should, i mean if you've done if you've gone you know right back to the basics of um of marketing and you've done your research and then your stp and you've understand okay who's my market what does the market look like? What are the segments built up? Who are we targeting? What's our position to those particular targets? Then you already know who the market probably is. And then it's about, let's say, engaging with those targets and then kind of nurturing their engagement with you. Um, and doing that, I think um, far too often people try to do that in a you know, salesy way and it's just too product-led and it turns people off. And I think where, where you see the, you know, where you see things like that done poorly is is either where lead generation is done above demand generation so it's done before or in isolation so um people call it kind of old school sales where it's just you know make a lot of phone calls and hopefully you'll get you'll get some of those people turning to customers but what you're doing there is you're creating a, a load of noise in an industry that's probably already very very noisy as an example i've got currently 140 people trying to connect with me on linkedin that are unanswered. I've got emails in my inbox from people that have just been emailing me for months trying to get me to respond and book a 15-minute call with them. And you know, I'm sure everybody in every industry has got you know a similar type of problem. What well, I think you, you know, if you accept that premise that that creates too much noise and that it doesn't it doesn't differentiate you to your competitors in your marketplace, then you have to accept the logic that you have to do something else. And my argument is is that that that's something else is build your brand and align yourself with your market properly and do stuff that isn't about selling and poking. It's about establishing community and growing, you know, alignment with them, building relationships, helping fill the gaps that aren't currently being filled for whatever reason. Yeah, that's really interesting. I, I guess uh, when we set up this topic, I hadn't fully appreciated the role of brand in demand generation, which probably yeah. sounds a bit daft to say now, but <laughs> That sounds like it is so central to to the kind of strategy you would choose for a demand generation activity. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I think for, for me, it's everything, because if you can't, if you if you haven't established what your brand is about and also what it isn't about, then you can't you can't really do anything authentically. And I think everything, you know, these days people are so aware when 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 you know brands aren't being authentic, when you, you know, you see the the latest 
marketing strategy from TSB Bank where they've got Ross from Friends doing loads of fantastic things. But then when you've got a problem as a customer and you try and phone them, they don't pick up the phone. Well, they're not aligned to their customers. They're just creating something pretty because they want me to be interested in them. They're creating entertainment, which is fine, but, you know. I'm feeling some pain from a customer. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, but I think good business strategies come from pain. And, you know, good innovation in any sense, I think, comes from pain often. So I think, for for me, you have to be authentic to what you're trying to achieve. So if you're saying you're about customer centricity, then follow that. Be prepared to follow that through in every aspect of your business. So when you're building your brand strategy, make sure everybody in your business is aligned to that strategy, and it, and it, it filters through. So you know, make sure that your customer processes are properly thought out and frictionless as much as possible. Or if you're about innovation, make sure that you're properly about innovation and you're not just about creating good UI, but on the back end, your servers are really slow or or how do you think it through. Yeah. So uh, as a marketer coming into an organization, not, not dissimilar to my role starting in a, a new job this year, coming at it from the perspective of the brand and the why behind it, mm-hmm. I think can be quite a challenge for somebody who's either new to the organization or now knows what they need to do in order to take a demand-led approach. How would you say somebody goes about the whole question of asking why when it comes to brand? Um, it's a it's a tricky one because you have to get buy-in from people in the first place. You have to you have to start, I think, by build, building that kind of a, alignment across your business that everybody gets the value of what brand is about. And I think a, a good place to start. There's tons of fantastic resources online that you can look up, and if people want to reach out to me, I'm happy to kind of pinpoint people to, to stuff. But a great place to start is a book called The Long and the Short of It by um, Les Burnett and Peter Fields, and it's, it's essentially about you know, the value of creating a long-term brand strategy and what that does and then short-term tactics that kind of fall outside of that um, so you have to I think start with doing that piece so explain to people what the value is and what you know by building a great brand what it's going to do and then the next piece is about agreeing what those values and identities are so interview as many people within your organization as you can what do what does our brand mean to you from a you know what your role is as a you know frontline customer service person what does it mean to you as somebody who's doing hr what does it mean to you as somebody who's in the exec in the boardroom you know, establish what that means for everybody agree on what your what you want to stand for what you don't want to stand for set those principles in place make sure that everybody's aligned with it then just create plastic values that you're going to put on the wall and people are just going to walk past and ignore when they're going to get a coffee or you know it just doesn't mean anything and I'm sure you've worked in organizations like that before where you get told by the CEO this is what we stand for but mm-hmm. it's not what they stand for and it doesn't it doesn't even follow through in their internal processes let alone their external ones so yeah. make sure you properly follow it through um that's really then- difficult from a marketer's point of view isn't it because you have to have buy-in from the entire c-suite or all of the partners at the top of a business in order to create create that authenticity otherwise it's just wrapping paper around something unpleasant <laughs> yeah and i think you have to be honest with people you know if, if that's the job that you've been given you have to be honest and say i can't do this job properly unless i'm able to do this and that's about good stakeholder management. I think. I think one um, thing I would, another thing I would suggest that people listen to is um, uh, Harvey Finkelstein, the guy who runs Shopify, president of Shopify, did a, a recently a really good um, podcast with um, Noel Mack, who's the chief brand officer at Gymshark. And in it, Noel says, 
you know, we're not great marketers, we're just great listeners. I think that's so true. And, it, and he goes on to talk about, you know, the, the, the fact that there's gold in your comment section and the value of listening and, and whatever else. And that's so true. There's, I think the first job of, a, of marketing people is to provide that market orientation and that feedback to the C-suite or to the wider business and explain to people, you know, this is what customers are saying. This is what, you know, customers of our competitors are saying. This is what our competitive brands are doing. This is the feedback that the, we're getting from the market. And this is going to help you make your decisions. Once you've done that and established that and then establish your brand and stuff, you'll find you'll, you'll, you'll move more and more into that kind of stakeholder management work as you do that. I think the, the whole concept of brand might be new to some folks who are maybe starting out their careers. Mm. So I think it's really important to address that point that a brand is not just its visuals. Um, so I wondered, you know, if you take the Gymshark example, for instance, can you tell me what elements they have to their brand? What is important to them? Is it a brand you know well? Uh, not not well enough that I can talk on behalf of no on the phrase, but <laughs> but what, what I what I would say is that um, for me anyway, what brand is is about um, what people are saying about you when you're not in the room. So mm-hmm. it's not about you know we're going to put out a new brand campaign and we've got a fantastic influencer who's going to run it for us and it makes us look fantastic. It's 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 everything. It's what do we want people to think about us or to say about us for the next five years, for the next 10 years? What do we stand for? And then what do we do to execute against what we stand for? And make sure that these two are kind of really closely aligned. So, you know, to take the example of, um, of IMP, the brand that I work at, we say that we're, we're you know, we are, we are here for the value of the market that we're working and we're trying to establish community and build, help them build excellence in what they're trying to achieve. And what we do to execute against that is we provide a platform for them to be able to speak to the wider audience to, you know, we provide a, a regular web show where people can come on, they can talk about their journey, their experiences, their frameworks that they use, what work, what hasn't, give that content to people for free, no paywalls, anything. It's completely free for everybody to use and to watch and do what they want with because it helps them and it benefits them. And you know, by virtue of doing that, we're established as somebody who is, you know, helping build the conversation within the industry it aligns us with you know, excellence in, the, in that place best practice all the rest of it so you're you're very much living the brand values with those activities and focusing on that top of the funnel awareness and engagement yeah um, is, are you leaning more in that direction because of the nature of the company that it's a startup you're bringing a new product into the sector um i think it's it's a catalyst of a number of things so we um, when I joined the company, it was literally two weeks after, um, two weeks before lockdown. I joined on the 9th of March last year, and then 23rd of March, everyone went into lockdown. So, in terms of any outbound sales activity that we might have been planning, we weren't able to do it because you know everybody that, that works in education was working from home, and all of a sudden you can't get hold of people. So it became extremely difficult. So, so we had to establish good brands. I think it was probably my my kind of long-term thought process anyway. It just sped that process up a little bit more. Um, but I think I, I think it's the right way to go. I think um you know if you if you have a, a good brand and you stand for something and people can um people can resonate with that and engage with that, you'll do well. Um the other challenge that you might have from a uh, kind of broader 
um, kind of company management perspective is, is quite often where you have um, organizations that don't necessarily have people with deep understanding of marketing who don't necessarily get you know, the value of brand and what have you. It's difficult to be able to say to them, well, this is the return on investment that we're likely to get. So um, what, what I would say in, in that sense is try to um, try to build some, you know, the, the metrics that you need to be reporting on are things like organic search, are things like customer lifetime value versus um, CAC, your customer acquisition costs, that ratio looks like, how that trends over time based on your, you know, your the brand work that you're doing, all, all of that type of stuff, and establish a, a, a kind of process of feeding that back. So over time, our organic search is getting better. Our, our cost to acquire customers is getting cheaper because our brand work is working. Mm. I, I think you mentioned a very good point there about stakeholder management. Because uh, mm. undoubtedly, somebody, you know, a marketer in that environment coming up against a, a CFO or a COO who doesn't have a marketing background, a brand-led approach will be very difficult for that person to understand because there is not a an immediate ROI that could be put with that. Yeah. So all those uh, metrics that you just talked about are, you know, are a way that a marketer can quantify that to a C-suite person who isn't maybe from a marketing background which I think is uh, really helpful. So thank you for that. Um, I was going to ask a question about when you would choose a demand-led approach. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, ideally, you would be working on your brand and you'd be working on the awareness in conjunction with any other activities. But when do you think it's important to prioritise being brand-led and demand-led? Um, I think... I think um... If I was to if I was to say anything other than you have to do both, I'd probably get shot by um, <laughs> by Mark Ritson, who I did the uh, the mini MBA course with. Yeah. Um, but um, in reality, if you're if you're work if you're working in a kind of smaller business, you're probably the only marketer there. So I think you prioritise on what has the you know the biggest impact against your against your values. Um, but what we've tried to what we've tried to do at, at IMP is do those kind of big brand stuff, um, and in terms of activation and in terms of direct engagement, um, we've kind of led that to, um, to, to 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 a lead generation type activity. So we're running kind of both parallel. Mm-hmm. So we're getting engagement, understanding that engagement, and then currently that nurture process is being done from a sales perspective. Um, longer term, that will probably be done um, from a marketing perspective. Do you think that's the ideal scenario where you can run both concurrently? Absolutely. Yeah. But the ideal scenario would be to build lots of engagement, understand that engagement, and then uh, lead generation works alongside the nurture campaigns you're running as a kind of as a marketer. And you have to take salespeople along that journey with you because they will have, you know, what, what they're looking to achieve, whether if they're an SDR, they're probably looking to get you know, leads qualified. If they're a salesperson, they're looking to book revenue. You need to explain to them how we're nurturing customers and what that data means and how, you know, by having these types of conversations with people about these specific services, this is where these customers are showing interest. So mm-hmm. talk to them about this and build your sales campaign around that, you know, help them as much as possible um, mm-hmm. and, and vice versa, they'll help you. Are you able to talk through a, a specific example of a, a brand-led demand gen project that you've done for IMP or as part of the MBA? Um, in terms, uh, nothing, nothing, I suppose, too specific, but um, 
what I'd say from you know what we talked about briefly earlier, that's the the approach that we definitely took at the beginning of um, April last year when you know the world was in lockdown was to just was to establish our brand um, mm-hmm. and to and to really build that around um, you know obsession with customers around innovation around um, you know, providing great service um, you know those types of things. Um, and, and doing that over a long term it really provided value. I can't give any sp- any specifics, unfortunately. That's okay. I was going to ask whether listening and, and feedback played quite a role in that, or should it play quite a role? Absolutely, it should play a really big role. One thing that I I can say that we that we did that I think has provided a, a lot of value is um, I was quite keen when I joined that we provided a kind of open roadmap um, to. Um, in, in terms of our technology and allow customers to engage with that, essentially giving them the feeling that they're you know, playing a part in the development of us as a business and our products and all, and all the rest of it. Um, so so in, in doing that, we, we get a really great idea of what customers are struggling with. So they tell us, you know, ethnographically, we this is, a, this is a challenge that we're having or we would like more information about X, Y, and Z from your product. It will help us do this. And that then allows us to, you know, understand what they're struggling with and understand where we can build other products and services around that to help them mm-hmm. the thing i'm thinking as we're talking is that it's inevitable that whenever you're doing a, a brand led or a brand listening project that you're going to come up with things that aren't specifically marketing challenges so you're going to come up with ops challenges with finance challenges all those sorts of things but it all of that connects with the the bigger customer experience piece that we kind of I wanted to dive into earlier, but I also didn't want to derail our conversation. So, <laughs> so that um, that holistic customer experience thing, how closely aligned to to brand and a brand's reputation uh, do you think that's going to be in the future? Um, customer experience and brand reputation, I think, are so closely aligned. Um, yeah incredibly so i don't think enough people for whatever reason maybe it's um you know marketers are scared of customer service or customer service is scared of marketing i don't i don't know what what the reason is but but that kind of alignment piece is is really important essentially you're you're handing over a lot of your a lot of your kind of brand reputation to to that customer service team so it's important that that they understand what the values are. Like I said, when, when you're establishing your value and your identity as a, as a business, you have to make sure that you take those um, those people in the in those teams along that journey with you, so that they understand you know what's expected of them in terms of deliverables, what customers really want to get to the bottom with, and make sure that those processes are frictionless as much as possible. Um, so that it, you know when we say we're we're about good customer service, we really mean it, um, and and, tr- and try to do. We try to do regular um, surveys with our customers at least twice a year to kind of understand how well we're doing um, Mm -hmm. and get a metric out of that from, you know, are we doing better than we did last year, better than we did six months ago? Are they engaging with what we've built in terms of the products or the rest of it? And and really try to nail down in terms of our initiatives, whether they're working to help us become better at providing service or, or, you know, they're detracting. Yeah. Are you using an MPS score for that? We do. Yeah, we use an MPS score um, and we've done that for um, the last two and a half years. I think last time we did it, it was 67. Cool. Um, Yeah, which is, I think, considered really, really good. Mm. 
Yeah, I think the thing that I'm thinking about with with customer satisfaction stuff at the moment is that it's almost like all bets are off as to what else is going on in a customer's world because mm. COVID has disrupted so much, particularly in e-commerce. The rate of growth has just been absolutely ginormous because customer behaviors are changing. So I feel like the the norms that would exist in a customer, no matter what industry they're in life, is going to be so affected that I would imagine their perception is a bit skewed at the minute. So I'm I'm having this debate in my head as to whether an NPS score from 12 months or 24 months ago is is even relatable to you know, or comparable with the current score. Yeah, absolutely. I think there's probably an argument that whilst people were sat at home with nothing better to do than worry about the product that you sold them, you could argue that um, potentially that might, might skew your score. But um, we've we've been quite fortunate that the um, we've we've been we've been dead set on building a community around our product and making sure that customers are an essential part of that um and providing that yeah that constant kind of feedback loop that you would expect in a kind of like technology um type of environment um and it's and it's it's meant that our mbs score hasn't hasn't dwindled very much the thing the first year it was like 63 and then it went up to 67 or something so it actually went up during covid yeah i'd be interested to see the the difference between you know customer in a b2b environment and customer in a b2c or a d2c at the moment because i think the the standards are so high for what customers expect from a retail perspective at the moment and you know we're finding that fulfillment and shipping and all that what could be considered a bit unsexy from an e-commerce perspective is actually the thing that's making the difference yeah it's actually really important though i think if you um i mean going back to an earlier point if you look at some brands um on online things like instagram and stuff like that if you jump into the comments and on just on normal pictures you'll see quite often annoyed customers and that depending on your viewpoint that either gives you an opportunity if you're in that marketplace to you know not necessarily go and attack those customers but it gives you an understanding of where customers are getting frustrated with that particular brand um and and you know can provide you with a lot of gold if you if you pay attention to it do you want to shout out any tools that you particularly like for for helping in this research phase when you're designing a strategy um i'm i'm old school when it comes to building strategies i'm a whiteboard and powerpoint man i'm afraid so i I don't use a lot of the kind of newfangled fancy strategy building tools and listening tools and bits and pieces like that so um yeah i'm afraid no good on the tools hey no that's cool (laughs) i I definitely they're in my toolbox as well but i i'm particularly uh i particularly like scm rush for keyword research looking what people are searching organically i think they have a nice um competitor you get a nice competitor overview from it so from a an e-commerce point of view or or a b2b point of view actually i think i i I kind of default there and uh you know i'll always be a lifelong moz fan as well um we do use scm rush actually it's um it's not something that comes out of my budget unfortunately but it uh, fortunately it's something that's paid for by our agency so um yeah we, we do get the value of it it is it does it is a fantastic tool um i just think it's probably too expensive for most people unless you're in an e-commerce type space or doing a lot you have a big established market which we don't we have a very niche market so it's um yeah, yeah that, that's an interesting point so your market is is quite niche uh, you know it's very niche 
would you say that it's the kind of market where you could actually name the prospects and the individuals on a, a sort of a one-to-one basis? Almost, yeah. We've got, I think, something like um, 1,500 multi-academy trusts in the country at the moment. Um, and within that, there's probably, you know, two or three people in, in those organisations that we could potentially talk to. In some, it's, you know, one. In, some, in others, it's kind of a handful. Um, so, so, yeah, generally speaking, there's a couple of thousand people in the country that are is applicable to our particular um, product or service which has its benefits it's you know it's obviously means that you know, brand is so much more important because um you have to kind of align yourself to those people that are typically very um you know they're used to using certain tools and that's you know to move them away from that can be quite a challenge um but equally but you know, additionally it also means that you you can't spend a great deal of money to get their attention because there's just you know there's not a penetration there yeah, absolutely. It's almost as if, you know, you've got this kind of crowdsourcing kind of feeling on the go, you know, with the the open roadmap and the community that you've built, you know, you, you could almost get all of your prospects in a room and talk to them all at once, <laughs> cover the entirety of the UK. So it's it's kind of a unique situation, isn't it? It's very unique. Yeah. And it's, it, to be honest, it's, been a, it's a really great learning curve from, you know, leading a, leading a marketing function. Um, in a business that is this niche and um, and that particular has been a great learning curve but it but it means that you can do some things really really well and other things you, you can't you can't really do at all like you know we were um, looking at recently at, um, at our SEM rush report and some the uh, I think total searchable market is something like 300 searches a year or something like that so it's just minuscule so the stuff like that that you can't do very well tactically but then the you know the the good brand stuff that you can do obviously pays dividends yeah absolutely I can see the brand is always going to be top of the priority list for your organization because that is where you're going to make most difference there's no I can't see you having you know a massive PPC strategy in the future because there's just not going to ever be the volume we're we're not suddenly going to get thousands of of multi-academy trusts in the country yeah. <laughs> you say that it's it's a growing market. Um, it's yeah, it, it will definitely grow over the next ten years, but it will never get to the stage where, yeah, we need a PPC manager, unfortunately. Um, so moving on a little bit from from the topic, I just wanted to stray slightly and and ask a bit about the MBA experience and uh, you know what that was like and your your thoughts on it. It honestly, it was fantastic. I I went into it because I thought okay I'm now a marketer um I don't have any qualifications and I'm going to feel you know when I go in to have a conversation with somebody else who's a marketer I'm just going to feel like you know I'm going in half cocked and I don't really know what I'm talking about or or you know they don't respect me or whatever which is you know my own um which is my own kind of shortcomings I suppose but I I basically wanted to do it so that I had some sort of established qualification and I understood the, the world's you know back to front um but what I learned actually doing it was was really good Mark takes you right back to basics in terms of this is how you build a marketing strategy this is why you do it these are the tools to look for this is why you do it in this way this is the value of doing it in loads of case studies and it's really good he's he's a very forthright speaker and he's quite outspoken about certain things which you know turns some people off but he knows what he's talking about he's um yeah it's a great course and it's not massively expensive i think it's like i think it's about 1500 pounds 
So definitely recommended on your list then? 100%, yeah. I would definitely recommend that people do that. Um, I'm actually looking at doing the second one with them, which is about brand management um, next, So, which is about the same price. But um, yeah, I would definitely recommend it. Actually, I had an interesting debate with people um, when I was looking at that. Um, some uh, some people that I know in the marketing community about you know, the value of doing the CIM qualifications versus doing something like this, which is a bit newer and yeah. fresher. So, um, yeah, it's, it's an interesting conversation that I'm sure people will have their viewpoints on. But um, I think generally the, the viewpoint was that CIM was a little bit outdated and it needed a little bit of kind of refreshing and the kind of marketing week stuff and the stuff that... Um, I can't remember his surname was was doing was a little bit kind of more um, up to date with kind of modern technology and the modern thinking and brand strategy and other bits and pieces. Yeah, I'm I'm starting to to think about my next um, my next professional development because I finished my master's in digital marketing in 2015, so that's nearly six years ago now. Mm. And I've done courses in between, but you know, not not something particularly chunky. Um, and what I'm kind of noticing is that it's the direction we've we've been going in for ages but maybe we haven't acknowledged it is this this thought that actually digital marketing as a separate discipline is probably not going to exist it's just going to be marketing because yeah. what part of our lives are not digital you know there is a digital element to almost everything and yeah. that's not to say that you know um direct mail and stuff will cease to be because it will still work for some brands but i think that the, the, the whole concept of studying digital marketing negates the importance of the strategic thinking, which yeah. I think is what Mark is all about from what I read and what I understand is that, you know, the, there's no point in being tactically led because you need to understand why you're doing the things. Yeah. yeah, 100%. I think quite often when you talk to people who I say who don't understand marketing, like, you know, you, you take the, my mother, for example, wonderful woman knows how to use Facebook and that's what she thinks I do for a job. So you talk to her about marketing and she thinks it's about placing ads on Facebook and creating some nice graphics and, and that's what she thinks I do all day. And when you talk to, the, to her or you know, similar people, you know, even some friends of mine that are, that are similar ages to me, they just don't understand the strategy piece is, is a much broader subject. And actually, you know, tactics are going to come and go and change. And sometimes they'll be really popular and people will love receiving direct mail that's personalised. And in other times, people will love receiving, you know, Facebook messages or being followed around the internet by Google. But these mm -hmm. things, you know, work in some industries and not in others. And it's, I think as a marketer, you just have to be agnostic to tactics and try to establish a, a, a strategy that you're, you're kind of comfortable is going to work and test and learn and keep evolving. Yeah, I definitely think it's about choosing the right tool for the job. Um, you can't expect every tactic to work in the same way. And there was a quote that I read and I'm, I'm fiercely trying to remember, but it went along the lines of every tactic could work and every tactic could fail. And it's all about the audience and what the content is. 100%. I, I completely subscribe to that. I think that's that's exactly where we need to be. Yeah. I think that, I mean, there are people in our community that oversimplify things. You know, they're, they're classic Gary V type stuff, which is, you know, go to where your audience is, entertain them, and then they'll be customers of yours forever. So oversimplifies. But in, in basics, yeah, I try, I try not to focus too much on my kind of tactical understanding because... I'm quite fortunate that we've managed to employ a agency, which is brilliant and that type of stuff. My job is to 
build a good brand strategy that I'm kind of comfortable is going to work and to understand the market. Mm. Who out there in the market, well, in any market, has got a a brand that you admire? Um, that's a great question, and it's, I suppose it's a market's favourite question. I'm a big fan of um, I'm a big fan of Gymshark, um, mm-hmm. just because of the journey they've been on and what they kind of what they stand for. I think sometimes they go a little bit too far with it. Um, but generally speaking, I'm a big fan of them. Big fan of McDonald's, actually. I think they're so clever with their creative work. It's so, like, as a marketer, I sit and watch an advert sometimes in between the TV shows, and I'm more interested in the adverts than I am the TV shows. And my girlfriend sat next to me going, you're so sad. But I'm there like, <laughs> that's so clever. Like, how, I, how can you not be excited by that? But yeah, um, I think McDonald's do some really clever work. I saw some creative, they did, it might have been them or it might have been a one-minute brief thing, but it was all about... The, using the yellow arch to kind of create light in a, in a bedroom because it was like establishing like family values and so, it was just so clever I, I love that whole kind of buyer psychology creative thinking type thing mm. now that's fascinating <laughs> so we're almost uh, running to the end of our, our chat if you could leave our marketers with one takeaway from today about brand-led demand gen what would you advise uh, read the long and short of it Awesome. That is the book to go and buy then. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> on Amazon, go and yeah. read it. I'll, uh, I'll pop a link in the show notes as well, which will be up on marketingmindset.club so you can find it. And uh, Dan, I'll also, any resources you want to put in there that you uh, want people to find, uh, that's awesome too. Um, so if, if somebody wants to reach out and chat, where's the best place to find you? Uh, best place is probably on LinkedIn. Um, uh, yeah, just... Dan Bassett I'm on LinkedIn um, I'm also on Twitter at Dan Bassett 88 um, and Instagram underscore Dan Bassett awesome well thank you so much for your chat I've really enjoyed this uh, this conversation and uh, I hope uh, marketers out there I hope you'll be considering your brand and incorporating that demand gen aspect of your strategy so rebalancing from just lead gen if that's where you are at the moment Anyway, thanks very much, Dan, and uh, I'll see everybody else next time.